And please, uh, please be seated, everyone. That's a, a wonderful, uh, a wonderful hymn for us as we think about coming to the Word of God today. All these different pictures of what the Word of God is, and uh, sometimes when we come uh, to the Word, we're looking for those bright uh, flowers uh, to pick uh, a flower. Uh, it's like a mine uh, where we're, we're looking for rich. Uh, jewels. It's also like an armory uh, where we come and we are equipped for battle. And uh, so many wonderful pictures there. And of course, as we come uh, to worship today, we're not all the same. And uh, we come with different, different needs, different challenges, uh, different burdens, um, different joys. And we can be thankful that as we come to the Word of God, the Lord knows every one of them knows every one of us, and that he will uh, apply his word by his spirit to us so that we will hear uh, what we uh, need to hear. Joy that is. So please turn with me then to that word. Uh, we'll be looking uh, this morning at Mark chapter 6. Uh, I'll be reading uh, part of verse uh, 6, the end of verse 6, down through verse uh, 13. Uh, you'll remember... Uh, that last time we were reminded that there's only two things in, in all the scripture that we find Jesus marveling at. Uh, one is that he uh, marvels uh, at the unbelief of those who know him best. Uh, and he also marvels at the faith of those who came from the nations uh, around who simply took him at his word and put their faith and trust in him. Only those two only those two places. And last time is when we read about the place where Jesus had come home to those who knew him best. And he marveled, verse 6, uh, at their unbelief or because of their unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. And he went out about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help today. Lord, we thank you for this garden that we have before us. We thank you for this, this armory. We thank you for this, this mine. And uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord, because without your Holy Spirit, we will not see what we need to see. So work in us, we pray, graciously today, uh, whoever we are, whatever reason we thought we came, uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would minister the truth to us and the truth uh, would set us free. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Whereas the Senate of the United States devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has, by a resolution, 
requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that by his divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We've been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We've grown in numbers, wealth and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us, and we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency. does a state of, the theo- state of the Theology of the Nation survey every couple of years. Last year, 2022, one of the questions they asked um, of uh, people, they called up anybody in the nation was, uh, they give them a statement and say whether you agree or disagree. And the statement was this, agree or disagree, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. So general population, they get a result in that survey of 71% of people in America say everybody is born innocent in the eyes of Almighty God. And uh, that's not surprising. But they said that 65% of evangelicals, 65% of people in America who say, I believe in the gospel, that we're supposedly, that we're learning in the gospel of Mark. Well, 65% of people who say they believe this gospel um, believe that this is true, that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of Almighty God. Well, if we believe that, um, uh, then I'm not a sinner, and I don't need to repent of anything. And why would I need to believe desperately in Jesus? Well, the folks in Nazareth didn't see the need as many in our own country don't see the need to put their faith and trust in Jesus. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two 
and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, let's just stop right there. Um, Hometown Nazareth, uh, full of unbelief, Jesus is rejected. Over in the Gospel of Luke, you remember Luke actually says they wanted to push him off a cliff there in his hometown because of the things he was saying about himself. They wanted him, they wanted him dead. What would you do next? Uh, if you, <laughs> if you come to your hometown, people want you dead, they don't believe anything, a word you say. Well, I know what I'd do. I'd pack it in. <laughs> I'd, um, I'd say, I've had it. I mean, what's the point? Uh, if those who know me best don't believe, what's the use? Well, no, <laughs> that's not what Jesus does. In fact, the Bible says Jesus continues to go about the villages, teaching seemingly undeterred and undisturbed. The ministry of Jesus uh, goes on. Uh, Jesus doesn't give up. Rejection by some does not mean the gospel has failed. Unbelief in Nazareth uh, does not mean uh, that the kingdom will not be welcomed elsewhere. And at this point, Jesus serves really, uh, I thought when I was thinking about this passage, Jesus serves as that uh, inspiration for that British uh, saying, right? Keep calm and carry on. Uh, That's what Jesus does here. He's resolute. He's come to set people free. He's going to continue on his ministry. But we also come to this fascinating point in the ministry of Jesus and in his life uh, where we where we see that he is not simply uh, planning uh, to engage in ministry alone. Um, But in fact, that he is going to uh, put these disciples, now apostles, uh, to work. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean uh, spirits. You might remember earlier in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 3, when uh, we read of these twelve first being set aside, Mark 3.13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, remember, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what we've been watching, actually, in Mark 3 through 6, is Jesus' uh, seminary training for these men. Uh, He has been training them. And how? Well, he's been training them, remember, the parables of the kingdom. And he's been training them and seeing that the king comes with power and authority and compassion and mercy to heal and forgive and set people free. So they've had their teaching, and now it comes to the point where they need to go forth themselves in his in his name like the man possessed by legion uh, that legion of evil spirits remember he wanted to stay with jesus and cling to him forever but jesus says, no you've seen what i've done now you need to go home and tell others of the mercy of god and what the lord has done for you well that time has come now 12 apostles set apart here exactly 12 men no more no less even as there were 12 tribes of Israel, there are now 12 apostles, 12 men who will form, as it were, the, uh, the core of the new Israel, the church. And then in the book of Revelation, we read in Revelation 21 that on the gates of the city will be the names of the 12 tribes and, then, and the, on the foundation stones will be the names of the 12 apostles. And so there's 12 specifically to bring that to mind for us. 
Only Mark in the Gospels, the other Gospels record this event as well, but only Mark notes they're sent out two by two. And we say, well, why would that be? Well, of course, if you go two by two, you have encouragement. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes talks about that. If one falls down and no one's there to lift him up, you know, a man alone. We all need encouragement in this ministry. The apostles will need encouragement. Uh, But also in the Old Testament, there's also an allusion here possibly to the fact that in the Old Testament, it it was only by two or three witnesses that something was established as true. And so they go out two by two, witnessing, testifying, uh, to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we'll see Peter and John go out. We'll see later in the book of Acts, Barnabas and Saul, or Paul. We'll see Paul and Silas. And, and the church sent them out two by two. Well, these twelve, we read, are given this delegated authority over unclean spirits. They have the right, that is, and the power uh, to act in the name of Christ. That's what Apostle was. Expelling evil spirits from the hearts and lives of men. Later in the Bible, uh, we'll read about the, uh, the keys of the kingdom being given to the church to act in the name of Christ. But here it's the apostles who go out with this delegated authority. Uh, their, their message and deeds uh, were to be um, an extension of the, the message and deeds of Jesus. Now, just stop and reflect on this for a minute. The powerful, compassionate, merciful, sovereign King Jesus, remember we've been reading about him, who has all authority over heaven and earth, uh, creation, evil spirits, sickness, and death. He's already got all this power, and yet the Bible says here he chooses uh, to use weak human vessels. And they're weak. Uh... To accomplish his purposes uh, in this world. I don't think, you know, I watched the Marvel movies when they first came out. I don't remember, you know, Captain America or Iron Man or uh, Superman for that matter. I don't remember him ever asking a bystander or a pedestrian to say, can you take care of this evil person for me, please? Can you, I need your help. I want you to be with, stand by my, please, come here. I want you to stand by my side. No. But Jesus has all authority. And yet he says, okay, now I'm going to take you 12. And I'm going to send you out two by two in my name. The Apostle Paul uh, was overwhelmed by this thought. (laughs) That he would be any kind of instrument in the hands of the sovereign God. Remember, he'd been called by the Lord, set apart by the Lord Jesus when Jesus appeared to him uh, on the road uh, to Damascus. And this is how he describes his ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. But we, says Paul, have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God. And not to us. So he was was overwhelmed at the thought that that God would use him at all. 
Why does he use them? So that he says, the, you know, he uses jars of clay so that the surpassing power and greatness of the Lord would be even more clear as he uses weak and sinful men and women today. This means uh, humility for us, of course. Humility for the apostles. You're choosing us. You're sending us out now. And also, of course, man, great dignity. You mean you want us to go and represent you? Humility, dignity. Paul will say in another place when he's talking to the Corinthian church, they were, had problems with boasting. And he says, you know, he talks about, I, you know, I planted, Apollos watered. But, you know, we're not anything compared with God who causes the growth. And yet he goes on to say then, but we are his fellow workers. Fellow workers, he said, with God. That should overwhelm you. I, I, I still understand why I'm a preacher. Probably shouldn't be. Um, but I'm still here. And, 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 and when, <laughs> when the thought comes of, uh, you know, the Lord's gracious, he blocks out a lot of our memories. And I think about who I was before Christ. And no business being in a pulpit anywhere or preaching the word to anyone but myself. And, um, and if you're a Christian today, you've got that same thought. See, well, I don't have any business being in a church on a Sunday morning worshiping the living God and going out to tell others what he's done. I've got no business being here, but he's chosen me to be a part of his great Work. Thinking of the Great Commission, Jesus has all authority, but he's pleased to use his people, the church, weak and frail as we are, to accomplish his purpose of discipling the nations. Go ye therefore, church, and uh, make disciples of all the nations. This is an expanding ministry, first of all, here in Mark chapter 6. We also find out about the, uh, the manner uh, of ministry, how they were to go. Verse 8, he charged them. The apostles to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. The point here is, take only what is absolutely necessary and recognize that the, uh, the Lord uh, will provide. Matthew helps us here as he gives his account of what happened here over in Matthew 10, verse 7. This is what we read. And proclaim, Jesus told them as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, all in the name of Jesus, cast out demons. And this he says next, You, rec- you received without paying. Give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. So Matthew helps us there because he helps us show that clearly the emphasis of the Lord Jesus here is, listen, men, as I send you out, this is not a, uh, this is not a money-making affair. This is not a wealth-acquiring affair. Jesus not, is not calling them to a health and wealth ministry, you know, take a big bag for money. No, in Matthew he says, you receive, that is, you receive the gospel from Jesus himself, his grace and mercy, forgiveness freely. So I'm sending you out, not to make money, but I'm sending you out to freely give. 
What you have freely received. You remember that, that old chorus. Uh, they didn't pay to receive the good news, and so they proclaim it freely. And the point is, the apostles must put their complete trust in the Lord. He's going to provide food. He's going to provide clothing. He's going to provide a place to stay. He's going to provide all that they need. Uh, later in the gospel story, the Lord Jesus is going to remind them of this moment and uh, ask them, you know, how that went, how that went. Did this work out by trusting him uh, for everything they need? He says this in Luke uh, twenty-two thirty-five, And he, that's Jesus, said to them, the apostles, the disciples, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And, uh, and they said, well, Lord, um, we were kind of short when we got to... Capri- no. <laughs> they say, nothing. No. No, we never, we never lacked when you sent us out trusting in your provision for us. Uh, This reminds us of God's instruction, too, to the Israelites when they had to leave Egypt in an urgent manner. Have your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. There's a sense of urgency somehow here, too. So ministry in the name of Christ, service in the army of Christ, means dependence on the provision of Christ. That's a wonderful thing. He who calls us amazingly as his people, uh, teaches us, sends us, also equips us, provides for us. And provides through his people. Notice what the Bible says. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there. Until you depart from there, that is, depart from that region. And if any place will not receive you, and they'll not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet. As a testimony uh, against them. Well, how would the disciples, how would these apostles, as they're sent out, know where they should stay? Well, Matthew 10, again, helps us out. Matthew 10, uh, verse uh, verse 11, goes like this, on this same story. And whatever town or village, Jesus said to them, you enter, find out who's worthy in it, that is, who is a Christian, who has been saved, who knows the grace of God, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, again, if this is a a Christian home, a home that receives you, receives the gospel, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace uh, return to you. So the Bible is saying it was the duty. And Jesus is saying to the apostles, it's the duty of the hearers in these homes to which you come to extend hospitality to you. They were to seek uh, out those in the town who were responsive to their message and ministry And where they were received and listened to, uh, there would be peace and blessing upon that house. But if they weren't received and the message of Christ was not welcomed, verse 11, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony uh, against them. Why? Well, because this was a known to be a symbolic, public Declaration of divine uh, displeasure because uh, it was understood that to reject uh, God's ambassadors, Old Testament or new, to reject God's ambassadors and their message uh, is to reject God himself. And so this was a symbolic uh, act that would show the divine displeasure. Why is that? 
Well, William Hendrickson says this. After traveling through heathen territory, Jews had the custom of shaking the dust off their sandals and clothes before re-entering the Holy Land. They were afraid that otherwise in their own country, Levitically clean objects might be rendered unclean. Why? Because they had the dust of the Gentile nations upon them. What Jesus is here saying, therefore, is that any place, whatever, be it a house, village, city, hamlet, that refuses to accept the gospel must be considered unclean as if it were pagan soil. Paul and Barnabas in Antioch do exactly this. Some received the message in Antioch at the end of Acts 13. But other Jews, it says, raised up uh, all sorts of turmoil for him. And the Bible says, well, they, uh, they, uh, they knocked the, the dirt off their sandals. They shook the, the dust off their sandals. As a testimony, Acts 13 says, against them. The point here is simply that the, the ambassadors of God who bring the message of God, how we treat that message, how we treat his ambassadors is how we treat God. Now we see that otherwise in the Bible when you think about the separation of the sheep and goats in Matthew 25. Remember, Jesus pronounces a blessing on those of the least of these that you have given a cup of cold water or you've taken them into your home or you've visited them in prison. And Jesus says, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Whatever you've done to the least of these, my representatives, you've done to me. And the people say, well, uh, you know, when did we ever see you needy? Jesus says, well, whenever you've seen one of the least of these and treated them this way, whether good or evil, you've done it to me. Jesus said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he wasn't. Well, he was. He was persecuting the church, believers like you and me. And Jesus said, that's if you persecute the representatives of Jesus, you're persecuting Jesus. Now, this was a serious matter. They come with the gospel into a town, but it's not listened to. Matthew says this, not only about the shaking the dust off their feet, he concludes it this way. Truly, I say to you, said Jesus at this point, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment. Okay. For the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, then for that, for that town. So you see, the message of Jesus, through his representatives, comes to a town. They reject him. They reject the message. And Jesus says, on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable in judgment. Yeah. Degrees of judgment. There would be more bearable for, for Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah. Genesis. The Bible says they committed grave sin. And uh, you know that scene. And yeah. Homosexuality is a grave sin. Do you know what's a graver sin? To be asleep in the light. It's a greater sin than homosexuality. It's to be asleep in the light. That is, uh, to have the full revelation of Jesus Christ and reject Him 
Walk away. Or sleep through it. Or say it's for somebody else. I don't need it. I don't need him. Oh, says Jesus, it'll be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on how we love to, we love to judge those in sexual sin. It's so easy. What Jesus says, it'll be more bearable for them than for you. If you do not respond in faith to Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. Don't let your friends forget it. Don't let your family forget it. Let's not let Salem County forget it. As far as what is the greatest of all sin. Why is it so great? <laughs> because you have had, says Jesus, the peace folks, when you come as apostles into these towns, why is, it, why is the judgment so severe? Well, because uh, you have had more light. You've had more opportunity. You've had more Sunday school. You've had more sermons. You've had more prayers. You've had more Bibles. You've had more of Jesus. That's why it's a greater sin to reject all that you've heard. Said J.C. Ryle, this is a truth which we find very frequently laid down in the Gospels. It is painful to think, says Ryle, how entirely it's overlooked by many. Thousands appear to suppose that so long as they go to church, or for some, so long as they're on the role of membership of a church, and do not murder or steal or cheat, or openly break any of God's commandments, they are in no great danger. They forget, says Ryle, they forget that it needs something more than mere abstinence from outward irregularities to save man's soul. That is, we're not saved by what we don't do. They do not see that one of the greatest sins a man can commit in the sight of God is to hear the gospel of Christ and not believe it. To be invited to repent and believe, and yet to remain careless and unbelieving. Ministry is about dependence, says Jesus to these apostles, on the provision of the Lord, testifying to the truth, presenting the truth, confronting others with the truth, and praying that the truth will find listening, believing, welcoming ears. And there is a, there's an urgency here. All you need is your sandals. And your staff, we need to get going. And so it's an expanding ministry. Uh, the manner of the ministry, dependence on the Lord, trusting in Him. And then, of course, there is the, um, uh, the message uh, of the ministry after their training uh, period with uh, Jesus. And um, what is that message? Well, this is what we read in verses 12 and 13. So they went out in obedience to the Lord, no doubt nervous. As they go out to represent the Lord Jesus. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick. And uh, healed them. Over in Luke, it says they went out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Over in uh, Matthew, it says they went out to proclaim uh, the, good, the good news. The kingdom of God, the gospel, good news. Here it is, the proclamation of repentance, which is the word metanoeo, which means to have a change, a change in one's, one's mind. And of course, all these things are wrapped up in what we learned in the first chapter about what Jesus himself 
went out to proclaim. You'll remember it went like this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's all wrapped up there in Jesus' own preaching. The gospel of God, kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And this is what the apostles do. They went out, the Bible says, and proclaimed, they heralded, they preached that people should repent. Or it could be translated that people should be converted, that people should have a, we need a, you know, our thinking is messed up and uh, we're going in one direction. We have a change of thinking. Um, we read it earlier uh, from the, uh, uh, the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, talking about the importance of repentance. I don't know if you caught it. It goes like this. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin. So we're not saved by repenting or any cause of the pardon thereof, that is, uh, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ. That's how we're saved, God's free act of grace in Christ. Yet, we confess this, it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon uh, without it. None may expect pardon without it. That's why the apostles go out, the Bible says, that people should repent. That people should have a, they got to have a change of mind, a change of thinking with regard to their sin and with regard to Jesus. They preach, they should repent. Verse 13 tells us, also they did exactly what Jesus had authorized them to do. Holy Spirit empowered them to demonstrate the signs of true apostles confirming the truth of what they preached through these mighty works in the name of Jesus. Oil often in Scripture being a, a symbol of the Holy Spirit's presence. But notice the message that came, that people should repent. Now why is that, friends, significant? That the message they're sent out with, representing Jesus, is that there has to be a turning from sin. There has to be a change of mind respecting sin. There has to be a, um, there has to be a new view of Jesus. There has to be a letting go of, of this, and there has to be a clinging to this. Why? Why is that so important? Well, sometimes we get the impression today that the Christian gospel and the Christian message needs to adapt itself to the changing times and the changing culture and the changing tastes and the changing worldviews and the changing social structures and the message of the gospel that your grandparents or your parents heard is just not going to do for 21st century United States. You know, your great-grandfather, maybe they grew up here in, in South Jersey. Yeah, it was fine for them to hear that old preacher talking about how they needed to repent and believe the gospel. But that's so... That's so great grandparentish. Surely that's not what, you know, we've got computers. I've got an iPhone or something like that. And yes, uh, we're in the church. I mean, I've been here a long time. Surely I don't need to repent of anything. Why do I need to hear the gospel call? To repent. On June 1st, uh, 2020, uh, this comment appeared on the Desiring God website. John Piper has a ministry where he answers questions for folks that posted on the website. And this is what was posted that day. 
A pretty common question is reflected in today's email from a young woman from Sweden. I won't, I won't, I'll spare you my Swedish accent. Um, a listener to the podcast. Dear Pastor John, hello to you and the team at DJ. I'm a relatively new Christian in Sweden. I have a problem with my church. I got baptized four years ago and became a member. As time passed, I noticed our sermons don't touch on sin and never call for repentance. I've asked one of the pastors about this who said they're not preaching contradictory to the Bible. Uh, they just decided to not talk directly about sin. They want to focus on the love of Jesus and his acceptance of sinners. It sounds well with me as an effort to attract lots of people into the church. At the same time, um, they don't celebrate repentance and obedience. What do you think of a church that doesn't preach against particular sins? Said Piper, I think the church is profoundly defective. It's unfaithful to the word of God. Over and over, issue after issue, controversy after controversy, sin after sin, is traced back up the stream to this watershed issue. Do leaders and people treasure the word of God above gold? Do they savor the word of God as sweeter than honey? And do they submit to the word of God gladly in its truth and in its proportions? That's the watershed issue, said Piper, over and over again, that I'm seeing in these days as it is right here. Why would pastors presume, he says, to be wiser than the scriptures in the way they speak to God's people? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Why do we think, says Piper, that we're wiser than scripture? That baffles me, he says, and yet, over and over, I don't have to be the case on this issue and other issues. Church leaders think they know better than the pattern of the scriptures themselves. And then he says this, it is unfaithful. Not to explicitly name, denounce, and call for repentance from specific sins that are in the world and in the church. Everyone, friends, who claims to be a Christian will say they are against sin in general. We have to be, and we have to say so. But no one, at times seems to be against any sin in particular. Uh, in the church? What are specific sins that might be in a church? Well, I'll give you a few. Like uh, neglecting the public worship of the living God. It is sin to not give God the worship that is his due. When elders call the church to worship and you say, no, I got other things to do. That's sin before Almighty God. Uh, you're saying there's something more important than worshiping the living God. I mean, what, what, what more would be the definition of sin? I, I can't think of one. You also, if you're in an OPC church, PCA church, many churches, you're breaking a vow of membership and sinning against God. Because you vow as a member of an OPC church to give yourself wholly to the worship and service of the church. It's sin. What are some other specific sins in a Christian church? Well, sadly, in the professing Christian church in North America, uh, like living with a boyfriend or girlfriend and being sexually intimate before marriage is a sin against the holy Pure, majestic God. But it happens in churches that profess to be Christian. What are some specific sins in the church? Like greed 
How about, how about disobedience to parents? You know, in 1 Corinthians, when it talks about sins that keep you out of the kingdom, it talks about practicing homosexuality right alongside of being greedy. <laughs> or disobedience to parents. So if there's any children here that are disobedient to their parents, and how they that's sin before a holy God. Or how about failing as parents to train up our children in the way they should go and just letting them go to themselves. That's sin. What about being lukewarm in worship? That's sin. Uh, what about being neither hot nor cold? That's sin. Yeah. There's a lot of things the Bible describes, even in professing churches that are sin and need Repentance. The fact is, friends, the gospel uh, is an unchangeable message for all times. Jesus is the same, the Bible says, yesterday, today, and forever. The message proclaimed, notice here, the message proclaimed by John the Baptist, repent. The message proclaimed by Jesus, repent. The message proclaimed by Paul, uh, and he began to preach, repent. The message preached by Peter, and he began to preach, uh, repent. And all the apostles here, now. Oh, it's the same. Repent. Turn away from sin and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. Come as king, establishing his kingdom, and who will suffer and die and rise again so that you might not die, but be saved through faith in him and that message. No matter what America might say, no matter what the OPC might say, or the PCA, or any Baptist church, or Pentecostal church, or Methodist church. doesn't matter what they say. This message will never go away, and it will never change. In the book of Revelation, friends, you just read those letters later today. The letters to the churches of Revelation. What do you read in there? Well, things are going well, but, oh, there's these things. You need to repent, says the living Lord. Uh, or things are going well in this church, but this I have a there's a problem here. You need to repent. You've lost your first love. You're tolerating all sorts of wicked teachings. You need to repent. You need to turn from that and turn to the Lord Jesus. This is the message of the gospel. We need to repent. We need to always turn from sin daily and back to Christ. It's so glorious, so worthy of our praise and love and adoration um, during the Reformation celebration. I don't know if we read it or not, but I was reminded that, that the first theses of Martin Luther, do you remember the first theses of Martin Luther was something like where Luther said, you know, when our Lord Jesus said to repent, he meant that our whole life would be a life of repentance. Not, not to be destroyed, but repentance is it's the gospel, it's turning from sin, where? Not to ourselves, not to anything in our, in our world, but turning from sin to the glorious Savior. That we will be cleansed of that sin. Let me just close with this from J.C. Ryle. The necessity of repentance may seem at first sight a very simple and elementary truth. So, well, of course you can repent. And yet volumes in Ryle might be written to show the fullness of the doctrine and the suitableness of it in every age and time and to every rank and class of mankind. If you're three years old this morning, five, where are they? They're not here. Ten, 
80, 90. Same message. It is inseparably connected with right views of God, of human nature, of sin, of Christ, of holiness, of heaven. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All need to be brought to a sense of their sins, to a sorrow for them, to a willingness to give them up, and to hunger and thirst after pardon. All, said Ryle in a word, need to be born again and to flee to Christ and all the time. This is repentance, as we confess in the Westminster. This is repentance unto, unto life, always turning from sin, whatever it is today, and turning for forgiveness and life to the Lord Jesus. And he said this, nothing less than this is required for the salvation of any man. Nothing less than this ought to be pressed on men by everyone who professes to teach Bible religion. Have we ourselves repented This, after all, is the question that concerns us most. It is well to know what the apostles taught. Uh, And we see it here. It is well to be familiar with this whole system of Christian doctrine. We're learning a lot of doctrine in the Gospel of Mark. But it is far better, says Ryle, far better to know repentance by experience and to feel it inwardly in our own hearts May we never rest till we know and feel that we have repented. There are no impenitent people in the kingdom of heaven. All who enter in there have felt, mourned over, forsaken, and sought pardon for sin. This, said Ryle, must be our experience if we hope to be saved. It is the unchanging unchangeable message of the gospel. Why? Because we have an unchanging, unchangeable Savior who has come for us that we might bend the knee to Him. May that be true of us, friends, uh, today. This message is for us. It's for me first of all. And it's for, for all of us that we would find that cleansing in Him every day. Turning away from sin to Jesus. May it be so. Let's pray uh, together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious gospel. Oh Lord, we thank you that the good news is not that you leave us in our sin. Oh Lord, there's so many places around our nation, around the world, where those who profess to be followers of Jesus are telling everybody to just remain as they are, to not mention sin. And never feel their need of Jesus the Savior. And then never giving Him the glory and the praise and the honor and the worship that is due our Savior and our Lord. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us in our own hearts, even today, to know that you call not just our neighbor, those sitting in front of us, behind us, family members, aunts, uncles, parents, children, but you call us to repent, to turn from sin, always. In the apprehension of the mercy of Christ, that when we turn to him, we will find open arms, forgiveness, cleansing, new life, peace, all in the person of Jesus. And then help us, Lord, to be sent out today to represent him well, to represent the message well, that others might come to know him. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.